0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode nine of Fireside Chats. In this episode, I speak with Mr. Don Kintner, who actually three summers ago back in 2020 was my driver's ed teacher. And I was lucky enough to get his phone number randomly and had it this summer when I was looking for some interesting people to speak to for the podcast. And so I called him up one day back in July and I was like, hey, I know you don't remember me but I have a podcast and we had some really interesting conversations when we were driving around Nashville and I'd love to interview you. And so he did not remember me at first, but then we reacquainted ourselves and he did remember me. So we ended up meeting up for lunch and then we went on a whole driving tour of Nashville and he showed me all these neighborhoods that uh, are changing and we talked about the histories of these neighborhoods and why they are the way they are today and how they're changing and what they're going to look like in the next 10, 15, 20 years as Nashville continues to grow. We also went to a mayoral forum because Nashville's having a mayor's race this summer. If you're living in Nashville, don't forget to vote. Um, but we, yeah, so we went to this mayoral forum on transportation. And that was really interesting just to see how the different candidates approached the issue of transportation, which is a problem in Nashville right now, because the city's growing really quickly. And we don't have great public transportation or affordable housing in the more urban areas in closer to downtown. And so people have to live in the outer towns or as far as Murfreesboro which is like a 30 to 45 minute drive away which is ridiculous and then everybody ends up commuting in on the interstate. Anyway I get really heated about this topic because I'm passionate about it. So we talk a bunch about that in the episode this is just something I was really interested in to begin with and speaking with Dawn and Doing all these different things, and he gave me a bunch of really great background reading. Which, if you stay tuned for the end of the episode, I'll tell you what books he gave me some chapters from to look at. Another thing, I apologize for how many times I say mm hmm, mm hmm, yeah, in this episode. Guys, it's so annoying. I had to edit out a bunch of it because I was just like, this is too much. But it was honestly because I was in agreement with everything Don was saying. It was all so great, and you will see as you listen. This is part one of a three-part series that I did with Don. Our total recording time was two and a half hours, and I thought about cutting it down, but honestly, he just had way too much good stuff to say that I feel it's really valuable to keep in. So I hope you enjoy part one. Stay tuned for parts two and part three in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you at the end of the episode and then in part two. On.
1: Hey Ward, and remind me because I'm trying to recall where all we drove that day when we did our driver training. Did we drive the Gulch and downtown, or where did we go?
0: We drove, I remember distinctly we were in Capitol View.
1: Capitol View, mm-hmm.
0: and then we also drove. Um, I remember going down Charlotte and getting gas. At that gas station that's across the street from the big pink elephant uh-huh. thing on okay. the side of the road. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. that out on was Charlotte. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And then I remember driving out of town to pick somebody, another student, up at um, that like old folks' home that's on that hill mm-hmm. overlooking the city, and it's that tower that kind of rises up out of the trees. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I remember. I think it might have been two days of driving, or maybe just one
1: probably two days I, probably probably two. Had me for two different
0: yeah, yeah I think so yeah. I think so okay. um yeah but it was a great time and I'm so glad that we've we've reconnected and now here we are
1: I know I was so surprised when I got your text and at first I didn't recognize your name but then you sent me your picture yep and then I remembered you yeah and I remembered where you lived I've a, I have a geographical mind so mm-hmm. I, when you told me you lived on Beckham I remember that
0: yeah 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 mm-hmm. absolutely um okay so to get us started will you tell us where you're from and what your career was and what you do now
1: okay well i was born in chicago illinois and then uh, we moved outside of the city about 90 miles to the east in a small northern indiana town near goshen indiana and then when i went to high school we moved back to the chicago suburbs uh, an indiana suburb called munster indiana just south of hammond right across the state line from the city of chicago so uh, my high school days were spent in the chicago suburbs and then when i got ready to go to college I came down here and went to Treveca University, and I've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. And I um, I majored in behavioral sciences at Treveca, which is a blending of psychology and sociology. And then I went on for master's degrees in psychology and a doctorate in psychology, but also took a lot of coursework along the way uh, in sociology also. Mm-hmm. And I've been teaching at Trevecca. For the last uh, 34 years until about five years ago, I retired, four, four years ago, I retired from full-time. And now I still do tutoring and teaching part-time. And as you know, I also do driver training. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I also uh, work downtown Nashville as a downtown Nashville bicycle ambassador. Bicycling is one of my passions. And so I ride my bike around downtown and I, I greet guests and visitors. I'm kind of a downtown Nashville Everybody calls me Downtown Don, and I welcome them to the city and help them find what they're looking for and uh, just give directions. And I I get paid for smiling and waving. That's a pretty good gig, you know.
2: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: And then I also, in my spare time, so, yeah, I traded one full-time job for four part-time. So my fourth job is I also do walking tours of Franklin. Mm -hmm. So I, I walk people around Franklin and tell them the history of Franklin and my favorite tour is the ghost tour. We do, uh,
0: oh, that's the fun. ghost tour
1: of the, about all the haunted buildings yeah. in Franklin. So, so that's yeah, that's me. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: So, do you ever have free time, or are you always just doing something? I, it seems
1: like I'm always doing something. Yeah. Uh, in my free time, I try to hop on the bike and go somewhere just to you know have some free time. But usually, I'm involved either teaching or giving a tour or some you mm-hmm. know something related to education. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: that's awesome. So, um, and then I have a fun question that okay, I always ask question. people. What is your all-time favorite city?
1: Oh, you know, uh, y- y- that's a diff- difficult one because it's hard to isolate one. But, and this may seem, uh, well, Chicago has to be one of my all-time favorite cities. And then also Nashville. Um, and I guess, depending upon the time of year and what it is I want to do, that mm-hmm. would differentiate whether I prefer Chicago over Nashville. So, in the summer, uh, Chicago's pretty nice in the yeah. summer. And it's pretty good for biking because it's got a 30-mile-long uh, uh, bike path along Lake Michigan. Wow. So, you ride along Lake Michigan with the city on one side and the lake on the other. And you can stop off. They have restaurants right there on the beaches. And you can stop off and dip dip in the lake when it's when it's hot out. mm mm-hmm. um, And... If I want to ride mass transit, um, Chicago has, you know, subways, and uh, they have the elevated railroads, and uh, they have a lot more in terms of mass transit available there mm-hmm. than we do here. Um, of course, in the winter time, you know, I prefer Nashville because we have a lot more mild winters. And also, Nashville, since I moved here, when I moved here in the 70s, we had no bikeways at all, no uh no bike paths, no mm-hmm. greenways, and since then, now we've built Nashville's built over hundred miles of greenways. Wow! So I can hop on the greenway. Uh, you can get on the greenway at uh, Nissan Stadium, and ride all the way to Percy Priest Dam.
0: Wow! And
1: that's a uh, that's a twenty eight mile loop.
0: I didn't know that that existed. Oh yeah, yeah. Wow!
1: Traffic free. Go through Shelby. Uh, go through Shelby Park. Get on the Shelby Bottoms Greenway. And they have a pedestrian-only bridge going over the Cumberland River, Mm -hmm. over there by Two Rivers Park, Mm -hmm. by the wave pool. And then it's eight miles from there to Percy Priest Dam.
0: That is amazing. Yeah. Wow. I'll have to take advantage of that. Yeah. Um, Those are all great reasons to love Chicago and Nashville. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So what initially attracted you to studying um, psychology?
1: Well, I've always been interested in human behavior. And why people do what they do, uh, particularly motivation—what motivates people to behave in the way they do—I've always had an interest in that, and so that uh, led to my interest in psychology. And I always, uh, when I was in graduate school, um, the first thing they gave me was a because I was started off in graduate school in sociology at mm-hmm. UT Knoxville. The first thing they did was handed me a sociology book and said, "Here, go teach," because uh, I was a graduate teaching assistant. So. We had to teach an undergraduate course in sociology mm-hmm. with, you know, like 100 people in the classroom at UT Knoxville, you know. But I knew the first time I stepped into that classroom, that's what I was called to do. I just I knew that that was going to be my life's calling was teaching. Mm-hmm. And I never wavered from that. Um, done it for the last 40 years. Wow. And uh, to me, psychology and sociology, they're closely related because I was interested in human behavior. And that's the domain of psychology. Psychology is a scientific study of the mind and behavior. And sociology is the scientific study of social be- human social behavior. Mm-hmm. So they're bo- at both ends of a continuum. If you're studying individual behavior, that's the domain of psychology. Then you study group behaviors and societies and communities and uh, culture. That's the domain of Human geography, that's the domain of sociology. Mm-hmm. So they kind of meet in the middle in a subfield called social psychology. And that's where you study the effect of the group on individual behavior. Yeah. So that's kind of the specialty I had. that I taught a lot of classes in social psychology and how the group uh, influences our individual behavior.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so your class that you taught for 35, 36 years was Urban Sociology, right?
1: Yes, one, one among many classes, right, was okay. Urban Sociology, that's correct.
0: So fill us in a little bit on what that class looked like. What, okay. what was the student experience?
1: The student experience, I always try to, all my classes, this is true of my uh, general philosophy of education is uh, less lecture and more experience, mm-hmm. uh, less lecture and more class engagement and interaction discussion. Uh, And in the case of urban sociology, I mean, it just lended itself to engagement and interaction. And I use Nashville as a model for urban development and urban issues and urban planning, both the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nashville has a lot of really positive uh, things going on and did um, and has also some areas we can improve on. And we talked about both. Mm -hmm. And so we took a lot of field trips. Mm hmm what we would do is we'd spend the first uh, few t- uh, minutes in class or the, uh, the first hour or so, and we'd outline what neighborhood we were going to visit. I'd go over the history of that neighborhood, how it has evolved. Um, because you really can't understand the dynamics of a neighborhood if you're ignorant about the history of that neighborhood. Yeah. And the same is true of a city. Yeah, We can look at cities and we can say, well, they've got this and this and this problem. We have to understand the history of how it got there. Mm-hmm. And then we can begin to address those issues. So we talked about the history of the neighborhood. And, and then we get in the school van. And later on, I taught the course on bicycles. Mm-hmm. So it was a, we called, called it Cycling the City.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So we talked for an hour or so about uh, Germantown mm-hmm. or Westmead. Or Green Hills, or um, Sylvan Park, and then we'd get on our bikes and we'd ride to that neighborhood, and I'd point out the I point out the things that I had uh, talked about the, with them in class, and pointed out the, the different aspects of that neighborhood and the history of it and how it's changed because I've been here since the '70s so I've seen how those neighborhoods and how the city has changed. Um, and then we'd come back and we'd eat. Always eat. We'd always eat in one of the neighborhood. Hangouts.
2: Oh, fun. Yeah,
1: one of the mom and pop. We didn't go to McDonald's or anything. Yeah. We went to the mom and pop places, you know, uh, in those neighborhoods. So they got that experience. And then we'd ride back to the campus and we'd deprogram. we would deprogram. We would sit out on, on a nice day. We'd sit out uh, in, on a porch outside of a classroom and we would review what we did that day. Wow. And they had to, each student had to adopt a different neighborhood in the city. They could choose which neighborhood they wanted to adopt, and mm-hmm. they could work together in groups, two or three students together, and whatever neighborhood they adopted, then they had to go out and do more extensive research in that neighborhood, and talk to the neighborhood residences, uh, residents, and the business owners, and the people that lived and worked there, and get their perspective and take a lot of pictures. Mm-hmm. Then they could come back and do a presentation to the rest of the class. Wow! So that's pretty much. Uh, the way, and then I also taught, you know, the I call it the wimp class, the people that didn't want to ride bikes. We took a school van.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. that is so amazing! I would love to take that class. It sounds so cool.
1: I would love to have you in there, Ward. Yeah, We'd have a great time. We
0: would. Yeah. So, how long would these classes be? How well, many they hours? Were,
1: they, they were they were semester long. So I usually taught the bicycling class in the fall. Uh-huh. Then I taught the wimp class in the spring.
2: Because uh-huh.
1: <laughs> um, usually the weather was a little better in the fall. Yeah. Um, and we'd go, they were on Saturdays, so we'd have lots of time. So we went oh, from okay. 9 a.m. until 2 p.m. Wow. So we'd spend 9 to 10 or 10.30 10 in the classroom outlining what we were going to do.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the rest of the time we were out riding mm-hmm. um, on bikes or riding in a school van. Wow. And exploring the neighborhoods.
0: Okay, so our topic today is all things cities. What makes cities good? What makes cities bad? Urban development, suburban development. You gave me a lot of really helpful reading, and I feel like I understand um, suburbia and also cities a lot more than I did just comprehensively. And like you were saying, the history of, of cities and of um, the growth of cities, and that's kind of helped with my conceptualization of America as a whole. So just as like a- a, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll
1: give you an A plus already. Thanks.
0: Um, But just as kind of a general question to get us started, what are the factors that help a city grow?
1: Well, generally speaking, um, every city is different, of course, and unique as to the factors that caused its initial uh, development. Its initial founding, mm-hmm. um, and then it's then its development, and then of course to the present age. And those factors change, um, but general, in general, you have to have every city has to have one thing, okay? And it starts with an E. What do you think that word is? E C O economy. Economy. Every city. Every city has to have some sort of economy.
0: And a water source.
1: And a water source. (laughs) You think about where our cities began and and where they still, you know, New York is on a harbor, Mm -hmm. you know, a nicely protected harbor, a beautiful harbor. That's why it grew up where it did. It was a center of shipping. Mm -hmm. All the major cities in in the east and in the Midwest grew up on water. Cleveland on Lake Erie, Toledo, Lake Erie, Detroit um, between two lakes, Mm -hmm. Um, Chicago on Lake Michigan. Or on major rivers, you know, St. Louis on the Mississippi, New Orleans on the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. You look at Cincinnati on the Ohio River. I mean, you look at any uh, major city in the east and midwest, and they started because shipping took place on water. Mm -hmm. And that was why the Erie Canal was so big when they built the Erie Canal connecting Hudson River with Buffalo. And that's why Buffalo grew, because it was the, the end of the Erie Canal. Oh, okay. And that's why all the grain elevators are in Buffalo, because that's where they transferred the grain from big ships to little ships. Mm-hmm. Um, and that formed a complete arc. So you, uh, a ship could come in at New York Harbor, go up the Hudson River, cut across on the Erie Canal, and then they'd be on the Great Lakes, go all the way around to Chicago. And then they built build a canal, the Illinois and Michigan Canal, between Chicago and uh, Mississippi River. So then they could go all the way down to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So it could, completed a great arc waterway arc all through mid-America. Okay. Later on, then they built the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Erie Canal became, uh, they, they didn't use the Erie Canal anymore. Now it's just a kind of a hit uh, visitor's place where you can go and ride your bike along the Erie Canal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What is the Seaway?
1: St. Lawrence Seaway, it's a St. La- Sor- Lawrence River that runs through Canada. Okay. And uh, they dredged it out. And so ships could now go uh, come in to the St. Lawrence Seaway and the St. Lawrence River, and come down through Toronto, uh, mm-hmm. Montreal, and Toronto, and they didn't have to go up all the way to, uh, on the Erie Canal, and it uh, allowed bigger ships. Mm-hmm. The Erie Canal because it just it was narrow and and wasn't very deep, so it had to be small boats. So it required you know taking your goods off of a large boat, putting it on a small boat, and then going back to a large boat when you got to Buffalo. Now you could come right in on the St. Lawrence Seaway on one ship, so it uh, mm-hmm. eased navigation. A mm-hmm. lot when they built the St. Lawrence Seaway. But that's, you know, that's waterborne commerce. That's the way our country started. That's the way our cities started.
0: Yeah. What about, so you said that that's true for cities in the East and the Midwest. What about cities in the West of the U.S.?
1: Well, see, uh, because the, the uh, country developed from East to West by the time cities started developing and even out West, the major cities are still on bodies of water. You take mm-hmm. San Francisco and Los Angeles and Portland and Seattle. They all are port cities, um, and but some of the cities right in the middle of the country, uh, like Denver, and like Kansas City, even though that's on a small river, but as those cities grew up, then they were less dependent on water transport. And what do you think was the major transportation that linked the east to the west and it trains? Had the, yeah, yeah, the Golden <laughs> Spike, you know, and everything. Yeah. So, so now we have a different mode of transportation. Mm-hmm. So cities are no longer dependent on water transport. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, they can, now we have trains to move goods and people. Mm-hmm. So the cities in the West grew up in a little different transportation model. It's back to, you read the, the chapter in the book, How Cities Work, about how transportation um, is what, uh, how people travel is the way, uh, influences the way they live and the way, you know, how the city is laid out. So once trains came into being, then the uh, shipping on water uh, was not as important. Yeah. Because you had different ways of shipping. And then, of course, after trains comes what? Cars. Cars. And and, highways. Right. Interstate highway systems. Yeah. So now places like uh, Oklahoma City, places that's not really on a navigable river. Uh, Again, Denver, not really on a navigable river. Um, places that are totally landlocked that aren't, aren't on any rivers at all, like Salt Lake City.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, and those all those cities used to be linked up by railroads, but now we have highways mm-hmm. linking up those cities. So it's a, it's a gradually changing transportation system. It's an evolving transportation system. And so now cities can pretty much, cities now grow up on interstate highway interchanges. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have a river anymore. You don't even have to have railroad anymore, really. Mm-hmm. Um, although most major cities still have both, but uh, now you could plan a city around a inter- interstate interchange, and it would do just fine. Mm-hmm. So, so,
0: with regards to to cities not in the U.S., like in Europe, for example, or older cities in the U.S. that haven't um, developed as transportation's developed, like New York or Boston, for example, those original cities, um, what keeps them viable? What keeps them alive and buzzing and and going as as modes of transportation change in that sense?
1: Well, the city has to evolve along with the uh, transportation uh, infrastructure changes Mm -hmm. and along with... uh, um, the economy and how it changes. A city can't be static. If a, if a city becomes static and doesn't change, then it either becomes a city that has archaeological or maybe antique interests, but it no longer is a viable center for commerce and mm-hmm. industry. So a classic example of that in our modern day in, in America is Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, And Detroit's starting to come back a little bit, but it went downhill since the 1950s. Detroit used to have almost 2 million people in it. It was the like the fifth largest city in the country and probably less probably more like the third or fourth largest city. Wow. I um, mean, since then it's lost, you know, over 50% of its population. Why? Because the economy because it was overly dependent on one industry. Cars. The automobile the automotive industry. Yeah. And when that uh People still buying cars, but they started buying imports. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but the big three moved out of Detroit uh, because labor costs, a lot of them came south here to Tennessee. We have the Nissan plant. Really? Oh, yeah. We have the Nissan plant here in Smyrna. We have the GM plant here in Spring Hill. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the the large automotive companies moved to the south where you have right-to-work states. You didn't have to to pay the large uh, incomes that the labor unions demanded. Mm -hmm. And some of them went to Mexico and other places overseas. Um, so, where again, labor costs were less. So that left, uh, cities like Detroit in a real lurch because that's what they become overly dependent. It's kind of like the reason the dinosaurs, <laughs> uh, became extinct. Mm-hmm. They got to be too big. Yeah. And then when their climate changed, they couldn't adapt. Yeah. Well, Detroit's, uh, three, big three got too big and they stopped having a diverse economy. hmm And when you stop having a diverse economy and you become overly dependent on one industry, you do fine as long as that industry is viable. Yeah. But no industry lasts forever. Mm -hmm. I don't care what it is. It's going to ebb and flow, you know. And so because Detroit became overly dependent on one major industry when that industry started to go down and started to move out of Detroit then Detroit went down with it. Mm -hmm. So Detroit has to give up, you know, they call it the motor city. My opinion is they got to give up the idea that they're going to be the motor city. I don't think they're going to be the motor city of the future. Mm -mm. I think that's become, you know, a a more diverse type of field in other places. Yeah. Um, If Detroit wants to reinvent itself, it's going to have to use technology to do it. A good example of that is Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was overly dependent. Do you know what the major industry in Pittsburgh was?
0: I want to say steel. Right. Okay. That's a yeah, great you got it. guess. You got it. Wow. Yeah. If you
1: look at archival <laughs> photos of, of Pittsburgh, you see all it, the, the the air pollution is horrible. The, the the whole sky is sooty and black and smoky mm-hmm. from all of the all of the uh, emissions from the steel mills. Um and those steel mills went out of business, most of them. And Pittsburgh Took a nosedive for a long time, mm-hmm. um, just like Detroit did. But they uh, brought in high tech, so now Pittsburgh is more of a high tech sector. Plus, mm-hmm. they have really strong educational institutions um, that kept it afloat as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what helps cities. You take Nashville. Why is Nashville has such a viable? Why does Nashville have such a viable economy? It's because it's diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think of Nashville, yeah, the first thing you think of is music, you know, music city. Yeah. But we have a lot more than that. We have educational institutions. We mm-hmm. have over 35 colleges and universities right here in Nashville. We have more per capita, per capita with uh, in relation to our population. We have more college students here than any other city in the country. Wow. For all the way from, you know, small community colleges and, you know, um, Lincoln Technologies over there in Gallatin Road where they work on engines and stuff, mm-hmm. all the way to large universities like Tennessee State and Vanderbilt, everything yeah. in between. Um, so we're not just dependent on one thing. We have education. We have tourism. We have, of course, the music industry, insurance and banking. Mm-hmm. The largest employer in the city is is who? I don't know. The state government. Oh. The state capital. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, of course. Yeah, so we, well, yeah. Uh, we forget about that. Yeah. But you know, uh, <laughs> probably fifty thousand people. I don't know the exact numbers, but probably fifty thousand people work for state government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and healthcare, we have major healthcare companies here. Yeah. HCA headquarters. You know Vanderbilt Medical, um, all the others. Mm-hmm. So we have a diverse economy. So if one falls on hard times, then we've got others to fall back on. Yeah. Now, hopefully our tourism stays up and, and everything, you know, stays healthy. But we're less likely, I'm not saying we can't go the way of Detroit. Any city can fail. But we're less likely to fall to that depth because we have five or six major industries that help us in downtimes. Mm-hmm. See? Yeah. So we've come through the pandemic and uh, the recession a lot better than most places.
0: Mm-hmm. One city that I'm that I'm thinking of is New York because it's so it's just been so big forever and I'm wondering if um, well I guess it just kind of relates to what you just said that it, it has such a, a diverse economy do you think but to that point New York did have a down period in what the 70s and 80s right where it kind of just took a downturn and then it it came back. Exactly. So why was that?
1: Why was that? Because, again, it all had to do with changes in the economy. So traditionally, New York's economy was more dependent on heavy industry, especially the garment industry. Yeah. Okay, and other industries too, but the garment industry was huge. The garment industry was to New York what the motor industry was to Detroit. Okay. And so then the garment industry kind of went down or diversified. And so all those uh, factories in lower Manhattan that, uh, you know, sewed blouses and skirts and, and suits and everything, um, they left. And so after that, then it did go down. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people left New York. Um, th- this is the pretty much the trajectory of cities in the 50s and 60s. Most major U.S. cities in the 50s and 60s and 70s and even into the 80s lost population. Mm-hmm. Chicago, Detroit. New York, Philadelphia, St. Louis, some worse than others. Mm-hmm. Um, St. Louis has lost over 50% of its population. Same with Detroit, Cleveland, same thing. Because um, they were more dependent on heavy industry. This thing that happened in New York, because it's a financial center and it's like a, a world class city, so the financial sector took over. So the financial sector uh, saved New York. Okay. Um, so you had entrepreneurs that, that came to Manhattan. And worked in the financial sector, and so that caused New York to continue to be a viable city. But yeah, New York went. You know, we weren't sure what was going to happen to New York. It hit that financial crisis in what mid 70s, where it had to be bailed out by the federal government.
0: Really? Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Oh yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, I had, to, yeah, and and so, you know, people said the the saying at the time was the last person to leave New York turned the lights off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's. <laughs> So we didn't know whether New York was going to go the way of Detroit or not. Yeah. Um luckily it did not. Yeah. Um and there's hope for any city, you know, I'm not bad-mouthing any particular city. Uh Detroit can come back too. It's not going to come, I don't think. If you're from Detroit, you're welcome to disagree with me, but uh I don't think Detroit's going to come back as a motor city. I think it's going to have to be more diverse. they mm-hmm. They're going to have to depend more on new technologies, whatever those might be for that city. Mhm. Um Detroit needs to invest more in their educational institutions. Educational institutions help a lot. That's another thing that saved New York and Boston.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Big, large universities, Columbia University in New York, Harvard University in Boston, mm-hmm. and same thing that for Nashville, all the universities we have here. Detroit doesn't have that. Detroit doesn't have one you know big university yeah. that keeps a mass of people there, educated people. Mm-hmm. You have to have an educated workforce. And you have to have something that draws them to your city, because that draws new ideas mm-hmm. and that draws creative juices. Um, that's why Nashville has a bright future because we're a creative city. Nashville is one of the best places for young creative class people to come. Yeah, it's one of the one of the best places to start a new business.
0: Really, so, in Nashville, mm-hmm. that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, wow.
1: It's uh, one of the n- number one cities. For young female entrepreneurs. Wow. (laughs) And if you have young female entrepreneurs, guess who's that's going to draw?
2: Young
0: Young male entrepreneurs. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I did not, I didn't know that it was a huge entrepreneurial city, but that also kind of makes sense. Um, So, to your point about cities losing populations in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, that kind of connects to this idea that, of America. This is from the book Transforming Race and Class in Suburbia. He, the author Thomas J. Vicino calls America a suburban nation. Um, and he talks a lot about how in the post-World War II era, people moved to the suburbs because it was a new frontier of the U.S. So how do you think that changed the trajectory of America's development as a nation?
1: Well, again, it's all tied back to transportation. The way your cities look is basically tied to what kind of transportation system you have. Mm -hmm. So the reason you have cities that look like New York is because they were tied to a transportation system of subways. Okay? Mm -hmm. So people live more densely compacted. You have, uh, you know, New York is the most densely populated city in the country, 29,000 people per square mile. Wow. And, And, you know. Think about this. You have over 4 million people living in Manhattan. That's not counting the, you know, it's like 20 million in the entire metro. Mm-hmm. But 4 million people living on a little island that's only 13 miles long and 2 miles wide. Mm-hmm. And 14, 4 million people, there's only 6 million people in the entire state of Tennessee. Wow. So, but it's all tied to the transportation system. Yeah. Okay. People walk in New York. They they ride subways. That For that reason, they're more healthy. Mm -hmm. because they're walking all the time. Mm -hmm. You can eat, you know, New Yorkers can eat anything they want, whenever they want, because they're going to walk it off. Yeah. (laughs) um, But then you take cities like Houston and Nashville, Mm -hmm. and cities that pretty much evolved after the car, Mm -hmm. okay? I mean, we were a small city before cars, and in fact, Nashville had one of the most extensive streetcar systems in the nation when we began. Really? Yeah, have you seen any streetcar tracks in Nashville lately? No. No, I didn't think so Mm -mm. because they all got torn up. Man. Um, But so cities that kind of grew up after the car, like Nashville, and like Houston, and a lot of your Western cities, San Antonio and Phoenix and so forth. uh, Los Angeles certainly is a poster child for cities that grew up after the car. Yeah. Um, It's much more sprawling and spread out and more suburban-like. I mean, you take a look at downtown Phoenix, you wouldn't know that Phoenix was the sixth largest city in the country because the downtown looks tiny. Mm-hmm. Same with Houston. The downtown looks tiny. Even Los Angeles, second largest city in the country. You look at downtown Los Angeles, it's tiny. Mm-hmm. Okay, But you go out to the sprawling suburbs, they go on forever. That's because the freeways were built. And once people got in their cars and got on the freeways, then they didn't build the uh, subways or the mass transit systems uh, to allow people to live in a more densely packed situation mm-hmm. so in a place like Nashville well we keep sprawling I mean now you can you can sprawl all the way from Gallatin all the way past Murfreesboro and yeah. all the way all the way down to Spring Hill in Columbia yeah and uh, be with you know so when I moved here in the 70s there was lots of farmland left in those between Nashville and Franklin and between Nashville and Spring Hill yeah there, there's not too much farmland I remember when what we now call uh, cruel springs. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Cool springs. I call it cruel springs because <laughs> uh, of the traffic. Uh, that's so uh, accurate, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, more. There's more traffic jams in cruel springs than there is downtown. Yeah. But anyways, um, I remember when that was all cornfield.
2: Wow. They
1: didn't have the mall. They didn't even have all those boulevards out there they weren't even built. There wasn't such a thing as Cool Springs Boulevard. Mm-hmm. There was only one uh, interchange between Old Hickory Boulevard and Franklin. And it was Moore's Lane. Moore's Mm -hmm. Lane was the only interchange between Old Hickory Boulevard in Nashville and Highway 96 in Franklin. And now you've got, you know, four or five interchanges out there. So the population moves because all of the interchanges were built. The shopping was built. And then the uh, office towers go with it. Mm -hmm. So you have all those office towers out in Cool Springs. And then, of course, the people, you know, go where the work is. So that's what creates the sprawl. And that's why, you know, um, you see in all the major cities around the country, the fastest growing areas are not where the rail lines used to be or are still, um, but they're out at the edges of the periphery of the city where the the highway interchanges are. Mm -hmm. You take the Gulch in Nashville, Mm -hmm. all right? The Gulch used to be the center of where everybody shipped because they shipped along the railroad. That's why they call it the gulch because it goes along the railroad gulch. Well, when I-24 came in and all the other interstates, then most of those companies that shipped in the gulch on the railroad, they moved out to the interchanges in Smyrna and Murfreesboro and Laverne Mm -hmm. and left all those factories vacant. So for a decade or so, that was just vacant land, vacant industrial property. And now it's been transformed into a different type of neighborhood. Yeah. It's no longer industrial. Yeah. It's now residential and uh, retail. Yeah. And so neighborhoods change, and they have to change. Otherwise, you'd have the gulch still being just an eyesore
0: yeah. in downtown Nashville. Yeah. I think they used it so well. They because did. now it's, it's totally a tourist hotspot, but it's nice. Yeah. You know, I was down there for uh, my sister's birthday brunch a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think I had ever been... I'd driven through it, but I'd never properly been to a restaurant in the Gulch, and I didn't feel like I was in Nashville. It was so nice. Yeah. So I think that they really did a good job of taking that unused space and and making something out of it. Because also, to the point of cities changing and reusing neighborhoods comes the issue of gentrification, which we've talked a lot about, and pushing populations that have lived in neighborhoods for generations out because they can't afford to live there anymore. And so I think when you when you take over these more industrial not areas that are not being used, I think it's positive.
1: Exactly. And in that case, you know, because that's one of the things that I taught in my class all the time. I'd ask them the question. I'd say, we'd be dri- riding our bikes or dr- driving through the gulch. And I said, because I had taught them the concept of gentrification. And I'd say has this area been gentrified? And someone would say yes, and someone would say no. And I said, in appearance, it might look like it's been gentrified, but you have to know the history. Gen- by definition, ge- gentrification means the changeover of one population with another population mm-hmm. by by definition. Mm-hmm. So if the area has been industrial and not residential, then by definition it's not been gentrified. So Okay. It just you know changes. It changes over to a different type of land use. Yeah. Okay. It's called urban adaptation. Um, it adapts to a different usage. But if an incumbent population, a poorer population, is not pushed away, mm-hmm. now Germantown, has been gentrified. Yeah. Because totally. it had a poorer incumbent population that most of them can no longer afford to stay there. Some can, you know. And the fact, see, gentrification is a double-edged sword. It's you know. Um, I've had some students that you know gentrification is bad. Well, it depends on who you talk to. It depends on who the person is. Uh, if you are able to stay in your house and your property values rise and you can get more for that house, then gentrification's your friend. Yeah. If you're a renter and you can't afford the increased rent mm-hmm. that happens because of gentrification, is a different story. Mm-hmm. So we have to be careful about casting things as good or all bad, either mm-hmm. good or all bad. Um, It's like uh, one of the things I sent to you, uh, the the city is like the human body. It's made of systems. And every part of the system affects other parts of the system. Mm -hmm. And what's good for your neighborhood, for you, might cause an unfair disadvantage or a negative impact on someone else, just like pushing out incumbent populations that can't afford to live there, Mm -hmm. even though the neighborhood looks better. Mm -hmm. And maybe the crime rate is lowered, which is good for everybody. You've, you lower the crime rate, doesn't matter what your income level is. That's a good thing, right? mm mm-hmm. um, But so we have to remember that everything in the system affects it. Nothing in the system operates in isolation. And so we have to be careful about characterizing things as either all good or all bad. Mm-hmm. Take the new Titan Stadium. Is it a good thing or is it a negative thing? Probably a little bit of both.
2: Mm-hmm. Why?
1: Um... And Just another example. that I'm just thinking about things that are in front of the Metro Council right now. Uh, the the Nashville Speedway at the fairgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about half the people are for it and about half the people are against it. Who's right? Both mm-hmm. or none. <laughs> for I different mean, reasons, yeah. Yeah, um, different reasons. You know, in the case of the speedway, you know, more noise. Um, but on the other side, it's already makes noise because it's already being used. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they put buffer zones up and everything, it might make less noise. See, these are all the uh, contingencies that we don't know until it's finished. Exactly. Um, and the Titan Stadium, okay? Are they going to build... Depends on what they build around it. If they build good mixed-use... Okay, audience, what's mixed-use? I'll tell you. Oh, You remember what mixed-use... I remember... Juice, okay, tell us.
0: Okay, it's four things. Right, four things. Um, at least four things. Living, so residential spaces, working spaces, offices, shopping, and play or recreation right you got it yeah good student another eight plus for you <laughs> thank you um,
1: so yeah places for people to live shop work and play mm-hmm. okay so if you include in the neighborhood the new neighborhood that they want to build around the titan stadium if you include all of those contingencies and all take all that into consideration it could be a very vi- and you know especially there room for mass transit mm-hmm. okay uh, in Nashville, we need to start making more room for mass transit. Um, so if you include all those things, uh, then the new Titan Stadium not only can be a boon as far as drawing crowds to the stadium itself and mm-hmm. maybe getting a Super Bowl. To me, all that, that's important. But to me, what's more important is what you build around it. Mm-hmm. OK. Yeah. Um, so anytime anytime you do something in the city, it has ramifications and impacts on other things some of those impacts are positive mm-hmm. some of them are negative and some of them might be benign you know um that we have to take those and some of them are hard to in, in all fairness some of them are hard to predict
3: mm-hmm.
1: so we, we've got to go easy on politicians um if they make a mistake in that area we try to do the best we can hopefully they try to do the best they can um but uh, it's hard to predict where, where all these things are going to fall.
0: Yeah. With regards to, to urban planning and the people who are making these kinds of decisions of of what to build where or what kind of spaces to build, whether it's mixed use in any any area, be it Germantown or around the, the new Titan Stadium, um, who are the people who are actually making those decisions and how informed do you think they are in making them? Is it the politicians or is it... People who work for the mayor or an own independent office?
1: Well, most of the decisions made in Metro Nashville, I can only speak locally, but this is true in most cities, I would assume, uh, are made by the city council. Okay. Um, And, you know, of course, the mayor, we just had the mayor's race here, and we know who the two front runners are, Mm -hmm. and that's important. Um, But even more important than the mayor is the mayor's ability to work with the council and... And to work with the, the developers, mm-hmm. um, one of the issues in Nashville. Let's let's uh, let's talk about one major caveat in this whole discussion. When we talk about Nashville, um, it's a whole different conversation than when we're talking about a city in decline like Detroit, yeah, or St. Louis or Cleveland, yeah. Um, and please, you Clevelandites and Detroiters and St. Louis people, don't don't hang me for this. But <laughs> you know, you have to agree, your city's been in decline. Um, <laughs> um and and it's it can come back and it will come back, okay mm-hmm. in time I mean Detroit might be the most beautiful city in America forty years from now. how do we know?
2: yeah, true uh, and, I and, hope and, it is I yeah hope me too I get yeah. to see that happen I mean I,
1: I have hopes for any city, but it all goes back to the economy mm-hmm. see um so but let's let's remember that all of the issues that we're talking about in Nashville are all good problems. why because Nashville's economy is healthy mm-hmm. So all of these issues where people get all bent out of shape, and you know, we can't, shouldn't build a speedway, and blah blah blah. blah, blah you know, let's put that all in perspective. I'd much rather have, be discussing these issues in a city that is on the rise. Yeah. Issues all the all the negative things that are happening. All you know, one of the negative things is the rise in rents and mm-hmm. the lack of affordable housing. Mm-hmm. That's all a result that Nashville's popular. Yeah. So it's a good problem to have. Yes, it's still a problem. We have to address it, and hopefully, our new mayor will address the affordable housing issue. I think uh, Freddie O'Connell, if he wins, and he's the front runner right now, from what uh, he got twenty seven percent of the vote the other mm-hmm. day. Um, so, if he wins, I think he's tracking on affordable housing and those issues. He's been in the council for a long time, and he he lives downtown and he represented that district. So, I think he has a handle on that. Um, so, we'll see. But you know, it's how do you tackle affordable housing? How do you keep housing affordable when it's popular? Yeah. You're working against market forces. Yeah. Because the market forces say, this ne- neighborhood here on South Street that we're sitting in right now, is hot. Mm-hmm. And you can look at the negative or the positive. Uh, a lot of this has become gentrified. hmm And uh, it's pushed a lot of the uh, poorer people away. Um, but it's also improved the neighborhood. So, you know, you got both sides.
0: When we look at... Two cities that have come up a lot in um, kind of the background research that I did or, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we went to a mayoral forum right. about um, transportation and public transportation in Nashville. And we heard all of the candidates speak um, and of the cities that kept coming up in conversation of what we don't want Nashville to turn into transportation wise were Atlanta and Los Angeles. So, and those cities are very uh, reliant upon highways. Right. They're very suburbanized. Very suburbanized, Mm -hmm. huge sprawling cities um, that you really can't get around unless you have a car. And if you do have a car, you're stuck in hours of traffic no matter where you go. I have this very distinct memory of back in high school. I went on a trip with some of my friends over spring break and we flew out of Atlanta And I spent the night before at my friend's house, and she lives in a neighborhood in Atlanta, and her dad, we woke up and drove to the airport uh, before the sun was even up. I think we woke up at like 4 or 4.30 because we needed that much time to make it to the airport for our flight because the traffic was that bad. But we were driving out of the city, and I remember seeing the traffic coming into the city, and I have never in my life seen so many cars back to back on an interstate. It went on for miles. I think I saw probably upwards of 10,000 cars just in that car ride coming into the city. So how do you think cities that are growing like Nashville at the rate that it's growing at in the last 20 years, how do you think that we can balance um, maintaining and supporting that growth, but also doing it in a way that will set us up for success in the long term with regards to um, a good transportation network that's viable, that doesn't push people out to Murfreesboro, which for those of you listening is like a 30 to 45 minute drive away. And that's where people have to have to buy. That's or, the affordable places. Yeah. That's yeah. where you can afford to live. But then you have this huge commute every day. And mm-hmm. with the rush hour traffic, it, it can double or triple the time. Um, So how do you think that? Yeah. How do you think cities, Nashville, but also cities in general can balance growth versus um practically developing in a in a beneficial way
1: well number one we're going to have to change what we're doing because if we don't we're going to be another atlanta Mm -hmm. and another houston and another los angeles
0: If you are curious about some of the excerpts that Don and I referenced in our discussion, here are those book names now. The first was Triumph of the City by Edward Glazier. The next is How Cities Work, Suburbs Sprawl and the Roads Not Taken by Alex Marshall. And the last is Transforming Race and Class in Suburbia by Thomas J. Vicino. Thanks again for listening to this episode and as always be sure to show me some love on the podcast Instagram at Chats Podcast, and be sure to check out the Roosevelt Group on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at the Roosevelt Group as well as our website which is www.roosevelt-group.org. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you in part two.